Greg Biggins and Brandon Huffman are two of the foremost experts nationally on recruiting. We have them both in one place on an all-new episode of Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast. What's better than one, John? Here's Johnny. Hmm, nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kanzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. Today we're doing something very different. We have a huge recruiting episode for you. Wilner, why is recruiting important? The lifeblood of every football program is recruiting, but recruiting is not what it was five or ten years ago, and uh, it's not even what it was a week ago in some regards. Uh, And we have got a special episode on recruiting, recruiting extravaganza here. we got two guests for the first time in the history of this podcast. Uh, we got Greg Biggins and Brandon Huffman, who cover recruiting for 24-7 Sports. Both are based on the West Coast. Both have been doing it for decades. They know everybody. They know the grandparents. They know the teachers. They know everybody. And they're going to help walk us through this ever-increasingly intricate process of recruiting. Wilder, I'll be honest. Uh, you know, years ago, I didn't follow recruiting closely. I said, wait till they get to campus I'll deal with the players and get to know the players and write about the players and report on them when they get here because so many kids would commit and then, you know, decommit and you don't see them. But it has become, uh, uh, you know, a huge industry uh, within the profession and vital. And, you know, you see the coaches leaning into it. You see the recruits leaning into it. Parents, interested parties, fans are more knowledgeable than maybe ever before. But I just love that we're getting two of the foremost experts on recruiting on this show. I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. Get a free subscription or a paid subscription. Whatever works for you works for me. We're here with John Wilner, Bay Area News Group. Uh, You can read him at pac12hotline.com. Wilner, I'm really curious to see what these two guys say. And again, you've got Greg Biggins, who is Southern California-based. We'll ask him a lot about sort of that approach of Southern California, the impact of UCLA and USC leaving for the Big Ten. What are you seeing trend-wise? And then we'll pivot into Brandon Huffman, who we'll bring on in the second half of this podcast, and we'll talk to him more about maybe the Pacific Northwest schools and the rest of the Pac-12 and some Northern California stuff as he specializes in that area. Uh, But I'm really excited about this and, you know, uh, I think we've got we're onto something here. Maybe we do this once a year, where we just bring on the recruiting, or a couple times a year, bring on the recruiting experts and talk recruiting. We could, yeah, absolutely. And you know, the interesting thing too now is because of NIL and transfer portal, recruiting provides fans with a window into the institutional soul of their schools. How committed are you to winning at football? And because it takes much more across the campus now because of because of the economic factors it, you got to be all in if you want to win a football you got to be all in across your campus with your president or chancellor supporting you and so your fans can you know it helps uh kind of unearth which which presidents which schools are really really care about football and i think that's that has added uh, a dimension to recruiting to me that that makes it even more interesting than it was a few years ago we're having two of the foremost experts on recruiting on the show. Um, Greg Biggins and Brandon Huffman are both joining us, but uh, we're going to start with Biggins. He's in Southern California, national recruiting analyst, 24-7 sports. 
he's big time. Man of the world, mows his own lawn, does all that stuff. Biggins, thanks for making time for us. I do not mow my own lawn. I wish I could, but I appreciate the introduction. <laughs> Everything else is pretty accurate that you said there. I kind of set the record straight on the, on the lawn thing. Someone you... might hear it and laugh when they know that I don't ever do that. So, But good to speak with you and the great John Wilner. It's been a long time. Yeah, we, we wanted to talk recruiting, but I got to know, too, like this job has changed for you over the years. Yeah. I mean, how, yeah. how different is it right now to cover recruiting? I thought you were going to say this job has changed me. I'm like, I'm still the same guy here, John, John squared. <laughs> yeah. um, the same guy with a sunny disposition, despite your angels ongoing inability to win anything. Hey, you know what? This is our year. I got a great feeling. We're going to, I feel a streak coming on any, any second. Okay. But how about those Lakers? Can we talk, you want to talk professional teams, Wilner? We can go Lakers right now and I'll be glad to talk about a little three, three game to one. Um, no, recruiting, recruiting has radically changed. Like you said, um, I don't even know where to start when we talk about how much it's changed. It's, uh, you know, obviously portal is big. NIL is big. Um, you know, just offers going out earlier and earlier. If, if you're talking, you know, when I used to talk to Willer like 10, 15 years ago, uh, you didn't see so many of these early offers going out, which I kind of consider not really committable. But that's another thing that you're seeing more of is, you know, kind of street agents trying to get offers for kids, hoping that that kind of gets some buzz and, and creates a little bit of momentum, which is kind of a weird thing for me as well. So, yeah, it, it's a radically different game. And uh, it, trying to keep up with it is very, very difficult. But you know what? I'm blessed. I, I still love what I do. But, yeah, it's a radical, radically different game. All right. So, Greg, we've asked a, a lot of our guests, where were you on June 30th? When you heard about USC and UCLA, what was your first reaction? Uh, I don't remember where I was. I remember getting a text. You know, me and Huff and Blair and Gulo kind of have our own little group chat. And I don't remember. I think it was Blair or Huff. One of them sent a text. And I, I thought it was like just a, you know, just kind of like a hoax. You know, like sometimes you see those, you know, those little things that look real, but they aren't. And then I just was like, I think I might have been on the way to the opening in Redondo, honestly, now that I think about it, I think I was driving to the opening finals or the Elite 11 finals, and I, I was honestly shocked. It just, I, I just, it took me a while for that to sink in and try to really process USC and UCLA not being in the Pac 10, Pac 12. And then just kind of like USC, I, you know, I've always felt like, you know, they're kind of built for that. They recruited at a national level, but then just kind of trying to envision UCLA from the football side trying to compete. You know, with some of those teams, the way they recruit right now, it just, it just was kind of, kind of. Uh, I don't want to use the word overwhelming. That'd be, I'd be an exaggeration, but um, I, I was pretty floored. I was pretty taken aback by it all. If I'm being honest, did you see an immediate, um, you know, uptick, uncertainty from recruits? How did recruits react in your mind to to that initial news? You know, when we we talked to some like that day. In fact, now that I talk more with you guys, I. 100% this was at the Elite 11 because I went and talked to Malachi Nelson, who was a USC commit literally an hour, an hour after that. And for a lot of those guys, that first couple of days to the first, even the first week, they didn't really know what to think of it. They didn't really know, if, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? And then now you talk to them, and, and I think most of them will say, hey, it's a good thing. It's a bigger stage. It's a bigger brand. Um, you know, it's more money for the schools, which obviously in, in their eyes, that means it's going to kind of trickle down to them, right? So um, you know, big stage, big competition, playing against better teams. So I, I think for the most part, they're excited. Then you kind of dig in a little bit. And you're like, hey, you know, you're not going to be playing, you know, out, out west. You know, your home games will still be home, but now you're not going to be able to – parents will be able to drive to Cal or drive to Stanford, drive to the Arizona schools. So 
you know, I think that is going to be a little bit of an adjustment. You know, the counter would be, you know, you would think they would try to recruit maybe more Midwest kids if you're USC, UCLA, because, you know, they'll be able to uh, suddenly have some games in, in their neck of the woods as opposed to before if they were going to going away to a USC, UCLA, you know, mom and dad, good luck trying to drive to any of those games, right? So I think there's kind of some pros and cons, and because it's going to probably be a few years before we really see, you know, the you know how these schools have benefited. Talking strictly just from a recruiting standpoint, I think it's going to be, you know, maybe like a four or five-year window uh, to see kind of how they kind of manage this all. And and to me, you know, that four or five year window, I, I totally agree. It's hard to it's hard to know for sure the long term impact. But that four or five year window is taking place during all these other changes, right? The expansion of the playoff. So there's a more opportunity to get on the big stage. The NIL transfer portal, payers potentially being deemed employees. Have what are you f- seeing out there in terms of what is the prime driver? Is there a prime driver for decisions now for, for kids, or does it just depend entirely on the kid and his family circumstance? Yeah, I mean, I always don't like to to necessarily group a lot of guys together, right? I think every recruitment is individual and it's different for that particular family. But if I was to, you know, kind of do what I just said I don't like to do, group it all together. I would say right now, uh, you know, you, the best football team are still going to recruit the best football players for the, for the most part, right? Um, I think when you talk about why kids make decisions, they still want to go play for the Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia's of the world. Um, you know, out west, you're seeing USC, Oregon doing a great job. Uh, Big Ten, it's still the same schools. Michigan is doing great. Penn State, Ohio State. So I still think it's that combination of big brand. You know, you want to play on a big stage, potentially compete for a national championship. But obviously, you know, we're naive if we're not going to say NIL is huge, especially when we're talking transfer portal. That's almost one of the biggest, if not the biggest drivers in a lot of the transfer portals. Yeah, I want to go where I can find a spot to play right away. But it's also kind of become a little bit of a bidding war. So much so that I think I even... You know, was talking with Kazano on one of his shows. I said, look, I, I've re- actually heard families discuss at a high school, the game plan was to try to go find a school where you can go play at right away, put up some numbers, go into the portal just to create a bidding war, just to create a little NIL action. So that the intention at a high school wasn't even to pick a school to be at for four years. It was, hey, NIL, let's get paid. Let's go to a school, smaller school, big numbers, and then boom, we're in the portal and everyone's going to want us. So. You know, the things that we used to hear a lot of, um, you know, location, I don't think matters that much anymore at, at all. Uh, ac- academics, unless you're going to Stanford, um, rarely comes up. Yeah, kids will say, hey, academics, you got like a 1.8 GPA. So kind of just brush that off, right? So, you know, it's it's kind of a long-winded way of saying a lot of the same stuff as before. Um, but also, man, it's, it's branding and it's NIL. Well, at what point of the recruitment, I guess, does NIL come up with recruits? So, again, everyone's different. You know, I've heard stories where a player will go take an unofficial trip, and it's one of the first things that they bring up. And it's almost, uh, you know, some some schools will actually kind of cross a kid off his board if that's, like, the first thing they want to talk about. It's like, yeah, you're, you know what, you're probably not for us. And that's not – other kids, you know, are, are taking visits, and the school is, is kind of – it's not always the school, right? It's A lot of times it's the collectives. It's friends of the program. It's not necessarily the coach or your position coach, but you know, there's indirect contact with someone else where you're taking your visit and there is going to be 
at some point during your during your you know two day visit a specific window one to two hour window where you're going to be sitting down with a collective and saying okay here's what we can do for you and you know i think you probably see it a lot more in basketball i would say but i think football you know it's it's become like i said man it's a, it's a big driver and it's at the forefront of a lot of kids and a lot of kids families even more so probably mom and dad and aunt and uncle and handler and all that stuff how is the pac-12's nil game compared to some of the other leagues um i would say as as you could probably speculate not as strong as what you see in the sec big 10 you know, I think Pac-12, the or- Oregon, USC are probably the two schools that are, are landing players and competing with, with with the big boys when it comes to an NIL standpoint. And then, uh, and that's probably it. You know, UCLA, uh, NIL for football, you don't not too good. Utah, I actually think is surprisingly, you know, they they actually do are, do a pretty good job with it. I think Washington does a pretty good job with it. Uh, but like I said, some of those schools though, you know, they don't want kids to choose them because of NIL. I, I think Utah. You know, just talk about them for a second and, and why I'm such a fan. You know, it seems like they just do a great job with the locker room and the culture and the environment there. They just bring in kids that just want to be there and compete. And I, I think they just kind of play so well because of that culture that they've established. Um, UCLA was able to get Dante Moore. Uh, obviously, that was a big NIL uh, for him. I don't know what the exact amount was. You heard different things. It's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, but for the, you know, if you strip him away, for the most part, they're not going to win a whole lot of NIL battle. I think that was like an isolated incident getting Dante. For the most part, you know, the, the, the schools that I would say could compete the most and, and you hear about are, are always going to be, at least right now, USC and Oregon. You know, they, they have, they're active. And, uh, and it's not just, you know, you can't just throw in NIL deals. I think recruiting is still, for me, it's always going to be a relationship business. And I, I think USC, Oregon do the best job when it comes to, you know, that their staffs, they're, they're, really really active they get after it they have aggressive coaching staffs and and they recruit the heck out of the out of kids and so they establish those early relationships and i think for oregon especially man they do they get guys on campus probably you know southern california kids they get them on campus almost as much as sc and ucla does and, and so i think that just goes to show how hard that staff works at it um i think washington does a great job connecting um and obviously they have a lot of you know they have nil opportunities as well washington you know it's, it's People, I don't think people understand just what a great academic school Washington is and, and all the opportunities they have, you know, after football. And so I think that'll come uh, with, with UW. I haven't heard it much, you know, Cal, Stanford, Oregon State, you know, Colorado was trying. You know, I think some of the guys that Colorado Colorado's bringing in, I'm starting to hear that they're actually making some traction and their NIL program, their collective is actually better than, uh, you know, than it was prior to Dion coming in there. So on the whole, again, long-winded way of saying it's still sec it's probably still big 10 um and obviously some big 12 schools as well or or probably the premier nil programs out there i think you and i have talked about this that usc was getting pushed around physically before lincoln riley and his staff took over and oregon state was a great example of that i think that last year of clay helton oregon state ran for about a thousand yards in that game at the coliseum and won and you know they were dancing all over the field and uh, so i'm trying to figure out how much of usc and they're recruiting right now is a correction from an era where they just weren't very physical and how much of their recruiting is about joining the Big Ten and getting more physical. What do you see on that physicality front from USC? Yeah, no, I think we did talk about this. And I said, no matter what, if if USC is going into the Big Ten, if they're staying in the Pac-12, if they're dropping down and playing in the Mountain West, which obviously that would never happen. I'm just giving you an example. USC was going to get more physical 
no matter what. That was going to be the goal. It has nothing to do with the Big Ten. Um, obviously, the, the Big Ten is kind of known as one of the most, if not the you know, most physical conferences. You, you have to be physical in the Big Ten because the weather, right, is you don't really allow you to throw the ball as much as other, other areas of the country. So it's just conducive. They run the football. They're tough. They produce a lot of high-quality linemen out west. And I've said this to both you guys over the last 10 years. There has been a dearth of quality offensive linemen and D tackles out west, specifically in Southern California. You can look at the draft. There's always going to be one or two guys will pop up. But uh, just compared to other re- regions of the country, you look at Texas, look at the South and Midwest, there is always going to be a lot more offensive linemen, just bigger, stronger guys. And so I think USC, regardless, you know, when they ever, when a, a, a Pac 12 team goes and plays, a Notre Dame, obviously last year USC handled them, but for the most part, right? Notre Dame's always had the, the physical advantage when uh, USC has played a, a Utah. Utah, you know, able to bring the, the big Polynesian kids in there that are big and strong and tough. Um, when UCLA or you know, those schools, whenever they, they match up against some of these teams, uh, I mean, just imagine if that's Georgia, Alabama, you know, going up against last year's USC team. I mean, as good as that USC team was, was you know, offensively and skill-wise, just up front in the trenches, you know, you, you watch how just stylistically Ohio State and Bama and Georgia and Clemson for years, those are just at different levels. So I think that's where the portal has been really good for USC. Uh, they are able to go out and recruit grown men because to, to further my point, you know, we just don't have a lot in Southern California of those those big, strong, huge D-tackle offensive guard types. But the portal allows you to go and get a guy who can come in and step in and play right now because he's already he's already a grown man. He's already played two years of college football. And and I think USC also has the kind of brand that they can go out and, and recruit nationally. And then you still stay, stay on the West Coast. You, there's still going to be, you know, a few quality linemen. You know, Utah, I, I think Hawaii is kind of underrated. Arizona always has a few. And then I get Northern California, Southern California. There's always going to be a few. The key is trying to gobble up all those guys. You can't let the top guys get away. And then go use the portal to bring in, you know, the grown men who've already played college football, you know, for two to three years and and plug in those gaps that way. Do you think that the reduction in the amount of big time offensive linemen and defensive tackles in Southern California is related mostly to a reduction in kids playing high school football? Or is there something about high school, the high school football scene in L.A. that has caused it because i think it seems like everything consolidates around the trinity league more and more every year and i just wonder is that bad for high school football and for the talent pipeline and then uh, as a result is it bad for the schools in the pac-12 that recruit la yeah you know i don't have an answer it was i was talking to feldman probably about two years ago about this very topic we we all were in, in agreement there is a dearth of quality Offensive line and D tackles, and then we try to figure. Okay, but why? We try to ask the we ask the question, but what is the answer? Why? Where they go? And I'm not sure. You know, there's been an overall, um, you know, the the amount of players that have that have participated in, in high school football in California has dropped dramatically over the last five years. But I, I just I don't know if, if that's the answer because when you think of the guys that play on the offensive line and defensive line, that you know, they're the tough, nasty, physical guys who just love football and. It just doesn't seem like those would be the kind of guys that are going to stop playing because of, you know, some of the reasons why kids will stop playing football. But, you know, it's just maybe some, you know, fear of injury or, you know, because they love playing another sport better than football. You know, the big uglies, man, they, they just love football, right? That that they, they drive on that. So if there's a reduction, I would think the reduction is probably coming from maybe, you know, future guys that are skilled quarterbacks. But 
I, I wish I knew. To answer the Trinity League question, and John, it's kind of interesting. You know, every year, you know, the Trinity League is, is kind of dubbed as the top toughest league in the country. We have, you know, the modern day Bosco. Those two teams are special. They can go and beat everybody else. But if you take those two teams away, you know, last year, at least in, in Southern California and in the Southern section, like the next best six or eight teams were all public schools. It was Long Beach Poly, it was Mission Viejo, it was, it was Centennial, it was Los Alamitos. So, and even in the in the, in the NFL draft, you know, again, over the last five, six, seven years, there's actually been more players drafted from Sarah High School than the whole entire Trinity League combined. So I think what people don't realize when they – I watch a lot of Trinity League football. I'm going to St. John Bosco later today for the college football showcase. Those guys are so well coached in high school. And a lot of times you see them, and they're kind of peaked already. And even, you know, modern day, as good as they are, the best team I've ever seen was the 2017 modern day team. That was the JT Daniels, Brew McCoy, Amon Ross, St. Brown, Elias Ricks team. You know, all five of those offensive linemen, you know, all went D1. It was the best high school offensive lineman, offensive line I've ever seen. Tommy Brown went to Bama. Chris Murray went to UCLA, then Oklahoma. You know, not one of those guys was drafted. Uh, Elias Ricks, he had injuries, um, wasn't drafted. You know, JT Daniels, who I, you know, who I, I I'll always love. Um, I, people don't realize, man, he, was, he beat out Stetson Bennett twice at Georgia, both times injured. Stetson came in and, and did a great job. Um, JT has a lot of ground to go to get drafted. You know, obviously, Almond St. Brown is, is blowing up, but like there's a difference between being a great high school football team and then being an NFL draft pick. And I think sometimes we get away from that. And I deal with it on a, on a daily basis, talking to parents and coaches, saying, hey, why isn't my kid ready to hire? Look at all the stats he's put up. You know, look how dominant he is in this lineman competition. And you have to kind of explain, hey, your guy's a, is a great high school player. That, and that's it. You know, that, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, you should embrace that. But you know, a lot of these guys are six feet, you know, 255 pound offensive linemen or D tackles can dominate in high school, but they're not going to dominate at the college level and, and won't be drafted unless you have those, those measurables, those long, you know, arms, you know, that high level athleticism. So again, I'm not even sure I answered your question and I actually forgot what the question was, John's. I think it was something <laughs> to do with, with why aren't people playing where the world the no, linemen go. You they're did. still out there. They're just, they're just kind of sawed off D tackles. Or yeah. just the offensive linemen are just, you know, they're just not as good. They're good high school players, but they just don't project as well to the highest level. So there you there you have it. Big and uh, great big, answer. Biggins, I you know I, I watch uh, C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young go high in the NFL draft, and and you know I'm looking at the Pac-12 quarterbacks this season. That you know it's a good stable of QBs for college football, uh, and I'm wondering what you think. You know. Do West Coast quarterbacks, do Southern California quarterbacks, will they start picking the Pac-12 again in, in with big numbers because they see Michael Penix Jr., Caleb Williams, Bo Nix, or what do you make of what's happening kind of with the migration of the quarterbacks? You know, maybe, John, but the, the funny thing was you started off that question by talking about two guys who, who went one and two who both left the yeah. Pac-12, right? Right. <laughs> to Southern California. So it's almost like, you know, are they going to pick the Pac-12 uh, – because look at what Bryce and C.J. Stroud did. Well, shoot, those guys left. Maybe I should do that as well. But I love what you're saying, I, I, and I agree with what you're saying. Dude, the Pac-12 was loaded with quarterbacks, and and the Pac-12 will always be, for me, a, a throwing conference, even though it's, like I said, you need you need to have that physical element. Um, I think it's just the skilled players. I you know I kind of I kind of you know killed our, our poor little local kids out here in West Coast for linemen, but in terms, in terms of quarterback play and skill play, it is very high level. And I think quarterbacks have always been about, you know, Southern California. Again, there's a billion quarterback coaches, some good, some not that great, but there's still kids coming to college, a little more prepared. 
it's, you know, again, the weather's conducive to, you know, year round training, um, throwing the ball outside. Um, so I think when you look, you know, I, I think it'd be great if, it, you know, I'm a West Coast Pac-12 homer. So I would love to see everyone on the West Coast stay and play USC, UCLA, Oregon, UW, Oregon State, Stanford. I mean, that would be, you know, amazing if they did. And and I don't see why they wouldn't. Um, again, it comes down. There's so many factors, right? It comes down to depth charts. It comes down to relationships. It comes down to offensive scheme and and, uh, you know, do you want to get want to get away from home? Uh, do you want to go somewhere you can maybe play right away? And USC, you know, they were going to struggle uh, to recruit a quarterback, you know, with Caleb Williams, Malachi Nelson. They don't have a 2024 right now. Um, you know, Oregon's going to bring in two. Uh, UCLA, Dante Moore last year, they don't have a guy yet, 2024. I think people are a little bit, you know, I don't want to say leery, but, you know, quarterbacks these days, they, they don't want to redshirt. They want to come in, they graduate early, they want to come in and compete, at least compete. Maybe not start, but at least give me a chance. Uh, I, I personally think what Bryson Stroud did was the model. Go play as a freshman. Go redshirt, learn the offense, learn the defense, the speed of it, and then you get your two years and done. And I, I think that's the model. I So many guys go in there, they play early, and they get shell shocked, and they don't ever recover from that. Isn't the the portal though, in some ways, a little bit of an equalizer for the Pac-12 because they can get guys on the rebound. You go and you just don't fit in, you know, in the eastern half of the country, and you turn around and you come back, basically come back home and and yeah. try again. I mean, Oregon State's using the portal in a great way. The to me, the best example in any of the sports is Johnny Juzang, right? I mean. That's that's the ideal in some ways for the Pac-12. Uh, but do you think that the the portal provides that equalizer? Yeah, I mean, shoot, how about Caleb Williams? If you want to keep it topical, I mean, he's pretty good at football, right? And I think I think what the portal is, is again, it's kind of funny. It sounds kind of funny, but what the portal does, it, it makes transferring really, really easy. So again, talking to parents at a high school, and they're almost like I think they're more willing to take a chance on on leaving home. Or, or, you know, sometimes it's kind of hard, like, man, do I really want to do this? Well, now you're saying, heck, you know what, let's do it. Because if it doesn't work out, I can always come back home. Which there's some truth in that. I think there's also some danger in that. Because I think a lot of kids, you know, have this impression that once they go into the portal, they're going to have the same offers and the same schools want them as they did in high school. And that's not the case at all. So, uh, you got to be very careful how you use the portal. It can, it can definitely be a good thing for you, but you have to also have some self-awareness and say, if I go somewhere my first year and I don't play and there's some reports that maybe I'm you know, lazy or not as good as I thought I was, that's why I'm transferring, then I go into the portal and guess what? No one wants me. And now I'm going to a lower level school because I can't, yeah. you know, those other Pac-12 schools wanted me. Um, so but I, no, to answer the question, Oregon State, great job. But again, USC, I think right now might have our number one recruiting class. We have a we have a transfer portal recruiting ranking. I think USC might have number one. I mean, they're getting dudes, yeah. and uh, you know, they're getting guys from, you know, shoot from all over the country that can come in and and play right now. And obviously, you know, Caleb Williams was a portal kid. So, um, you know, Jordan Addison was the first round pick out of the portal. They're going to fill their offensive line and defensive line needs at, with portal guys. Uh, Big Bear from Georgia. So, yeah, I think you said it, John. It is definitely a great equalizer. And the cool thing is this. Me and Huff have both kind of become a little bit – I don't know what – I can't think of the word, but high school recruits nowadays, they're a little they, – they can be a little bit over the top, right? They, it's all about, hey, who shows me the most love, who shows me the most attention, you know, who sends me the coolest edits, who DMs me the most. 
and, and that's not even football, right? So when you have kids going to the portal, they don't care about that. They want to play. Yeah. We're done with that. They don't care who cruising the hardest. They just want to, hey, where can I go play and who's going to develop me? And that's why I think you see schools like UCLA and Oregon State who are known for developing well. They're going to do well in the portal because kids don't care about the other stuff. They care about, I want to play football. And those two schools do a really good job of it. Wave your wand and change one thing about recruiting, whether it's the calendar or the rules. Is there something that just jumps out to you that college football, Power Five especially, has got to do to make recruiting, to solidify recruiting for you know the next five, 10 years? Huh, that's a good question. Put me on the spot. You know, there, there's two. Um, one of them, I, I would change the early signing period from December and I would move it to like end of the summer, like August. Um, it just doesn't make sense to have it six weeks apart. Do it with, you know, basketball, I think has it right. You know, you do it before your season and you do it after the season. Um, but the big thing that I would love to see, I think it would be, I think it would be good was I would, I don't know how you'd even, even enforce it, but you know, all these guys, you know, eighth graders, freshmen with all these fake offers that you can't commit to that are just, you know, that are doing so much more harm than good. It's it, it created a lot of entitlement for kids. It's creating this aura of I'm really good. Even though I haven't started a high school game yet, I have 10 offers. Um, and it, it <laughs> creates these, these, this, this, these monsters where they don't think they need to work hard and they're, they're, they're driven not because they love football, but they're driven because they love, they love, they love recruiting. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be cool if somehow you couldn't really offer a kid um, maybe until late, I, I don't have this exact time, but maybe after his sophomore season and then they could start to collect offers. And that way I think, you know, you'd have two years of players actually playing football because hopefully because they, they love the, the love of the game, they want to be developed. They want to be, you know, a great teammate and, you know, they, they want to get better. And they're not going to have all these offers that are not real to, to kind of get in the way of that. And so if you could kind of somehow change that up, again, I don't know how, because there would still be under the table stuff and college is still telling kids, hey, you know, we can't offer you now, but we love you, but we're going to offer you later on. Uh, you know, right now, dude, it's other California. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, there's guys that pay people to get them offers mm. and they're not real. And I, I think, uh, I think we need to get rid of that. I'm not a huge fan of that. You know, these offers, they, they and it just creates so much division, even among teammates, right? When you see this guy who hasn't played has 10 offers and you don't, and you're the better football player. So, yeah, maybe make it so you can't offer a player until after he's played, you know, his sophomore year. Then we can start it at that point in time. Still recruit the kid, but don't offer yet. And maybe that might change some things up. That's just kind of spitballing a little bit. I heard some people talk about USC, UCLA to the Big Ten would cause um, would cause a massive shift in the Pac-12 with recruiting. But my sense is that we haven't really seen that except for USC's cleaning up in the portal. Like, what do you see? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there will be a massive shift. You know, someone asked me who's going to be the new flagship. And I'm like, well, I kind of think Oregon has already been the flagship, right? I mean, when it comes to recruiting and it comes to probably the most wins, it, it you know, most Pac-12 championships, I feel like Oregon and Utah have already kind of been you know, that flagship. And I, I think it's always going to be USC football, UCLA is, is basketball, right? Those are going to be the flagship schools for the conference. And you know, the Pac-12 is good when USC is good in football. Pac-12 hoops is good when UCLA is good in basketball. But, you know, I, I think, you know, Oregon, Washington, Utah are really good schools. Stanford's always going to be Stanford. I, I hope they come back up. I miss those days of, you know, just, you know, when they were just dominant physically, you know, what, what they call like it, something, um, you know, it, it like just the brutality that they, that they played with. 
Um, you know, I would love to see Cal come up. I would love to see, you know, Utah, Colorado, you guys know more than I do if they're going to be staying in the Pac-10, Pac-12 or not. But I think, it, you know, depending on who comes in and who leaves, I think it's still going to be a strong conference. I think, I, I think there's still going to be players that want to stay close to home and play for those schools. You know, I think, look at, I know San Diego State still does does really well every year. Fresno State does really well every year. I'm not I'm saying the Pac-12 should be relegated to, you know, trying to be like those guys, but I'm saying there's always going to be good football players wanting to stay close to home, and and a lot of guys on the West Coast are going to want to stay and play for your Oregon's, Washington's, Utah's of the world. So I, I think I think there's kind of a, the sense of it's going to, you know, be a catastrophe, but I think that's a little bit exaggerated. Yeah, and in San Diego State, I mean, if San Diego State gets invited to the Pac-12, immediate can they immediately sort of backfill what maybe UCLA was doing with recruiting, or do you see that as a bigger climb? Um, you know, that's 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 a good question. I think from a football standpoint, you know, again, I don't have the, the stats in front of me, but I, I would I would bet San Diego State's probably had more success than UCLA, right? Just towards the wins and loss of the last decade. From a, a recruiting standpoint, I think it will take some time. But man, I I think San Diego State joining a Power Five school will be huge. I, I think it will be. I mean, it's a it's a great school. If you've ever been there before, beautiful campus right there. You know, San Diego is, is an unbelievable area. Um, facilities are really good, and they got a really good coaching staff. So I think they can come in for basketball and football. That they could, they would be able to com- compete like right away. Like they would be able to come in and compete right away. I think and, and be like top five team uh, for both sports. And those are the two powers, you know, power sports, right? So from a recruiting standpoint. They don't have that national brand that UCLA does. I mean, no one does, right? I mean, UCLA is known in other other parts of the country, other parts of the world, excuse me. Um, so that national brand, UCLA, uh, SDSU will never have that. But I think it, you know, I, I think it's still a really strong brand. And I think joining the, the Pac-10, Pac-12, I keep saying that. I'm just going to say Pac-12. It's easier. Yeah. Um, if they were to join the Pac-12, I think I think they could do some damage for sure. It'd be fun for me to see. I would love to see that. Greg, I think uh, later this summer we're going to – get back to you and you can provide us with the list of the kids who have 10 scholarship offers and have not actually played high school football yet. Well, I'd love to see that list. Um, it's not hard to find, man. You can just go on Twitter and <laughs> I just got tagged in about 10 offers today by kids who have offers from some power school. They're going, what the heck? So, yeah. uh, yeah, it's, it's and you know what? And those, those kids, they might be good. They might end, end up being really good and, and developing, but, as of right now, I just think it's too much too soon. It's nuts out there. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, help, I appreciate you making sense out of what's going on in Southern California because it's it's hard to know, right? Unless you're on the ground there and talking to the the players and their families and the co- the high school coaches and you know the the handlers, it is hard to know what is impacting the decision making and what role this Big Ten thing has had. So. Appreciate you kind of providing some some clarity for us on that whole thing. John, always here. I know my guy, Canzano. I, I always go on with him. I, I, you kind of brushed me aside. I know Huffman's your guy. I'm okay with that. I love Huff, too. <laughs> so it was good to kind of catch, catch up with you. Oh. And uh, my, 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 my guy, John Canzano, always, always, always you know, has the time yep. for me. He always, always got do. love for me. I so do. <laughs> it was good to talk to both you for a change. But just, you know, I, I, I know where I stand. John Wilner. In, that in your cuts deep, order. man. Ugh. 
cuts hey, deep. Huffman cuts. De- hey, cuts deep for me as well. But you know, at least I got my guy Kanzano who you know kind of <laughs> lifts me up and makes me feel like I'm important. I still have value. You I, know what I'm saying? So, I'm here for you. I'm recruiting you. I mean, that's this is. I, it's about. It's a relationship. It's a relationship I business. You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Thanks. I'll absolutely. take you. Th- I'll take you after you get through the portal. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> there we go. Thanks, Biggins. God bless you both. Alrighty, Greg. All right, guys. All right. Thanks Later. a ton, man. Take care. There he goes. We just heard from Greg Biggins. Now we're pivoting to his buddy, Brandon Huffman, national recruiting editor, 24-7 Sports. He's joining us Seattle-based. Uh, but we're going to talk Northern California. We're going to talk the Pacific Northwest, the rest of the rest of the picture, really. Brandon, thanks for making time for us, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely, fellas. Good to be here. Let's start with maybe, you know, we were, we were talking a lot of Southern California with Biggins. I know you spent some time in Northern California recently. Like, quick takeaways what are you seeing right now, you know, as as you talk with kids and recruits and coaches? Yeah, you know, first, the, the kind of the most interesting thing is last year was such a loaded year for Northern California players. It's dipped down a little bit in 2024, but the 2025 class is really strong. And as a result of that, you're seeing a lot of national programs kind of, you know, setting up tents in Northern California. And you've got a lot of the, the schools in the, the Bay Area. We have both Cal and Stanford trying to get back in the mix and try to keep some of those kids more local. But once again, we're seeing Northern California kids really being willing to look at national schools. And then also a lot of those Northern California kids really are fond of Oregon and Washington. So, you know, the, the Pac-12 North is doing well in Northern California, but I don't think that's much to Cal and Stanford's liking right now. I mean, I, I just don't see Cal and Stanford are have so many issues right now, right? And I don't know how they're going to compete unless they they make some serious changes institutionally, right? I mean, do you see uh, an end game for either of those those programs on the recruiting trail that that they a way they can make this thing into a positive? I think you know it, it may be a drastic measure. We've seen what Stanford done had done under the the latter part of the Jim Harbaugh years and the David Shaw years, where they were being able to just pick and choose who they wanted to recruit, but. You know, people forget, and I've been covering recruiting long enough to remember when Jim Harbaugh got to Stanford, they loosened up the admissions requirements a smidge. Uh, They probably don't want that to be well known, but they were offering players that had no business getting Stanford offers. And they were still, you know, not getting into school, but they were expanding their offer base. And I remember specifically how many players were getting offers that, you know, we're going to have a hard time getting into a lot of schools, but we're getting Stanford offers. Then they got to be a little bit more selective. Right now, I think you're seeing a little bit more flexibility in who they're offering, whether they get them into school or not, is a whole other story. But they're not limiting their own pool. So I think Stanford can get back to, you know, maybe the success that they had early on under Harbaugh with recruiting if they loosen up requirements a little bit. As for Cal, you know, we've seen them dip into the portal a lot more aggressively in the last couple of weeks and kind of offset maybe their lack of success on or in high school recruiting by shifting their focus and kind of following a similar model to what Chip Kelly has done at UCLA, where you have, you know, stricter academic restrictions that maybe limit your pool. And I think that they're finding a little bit more success being a, a nice destination for portal players. But the, the flip side of that is that you really scuffle to get good high school players that are from your region, that are from your backyard and with, you know, 2025 being another strong year in Northern California, that would be a good time for Cal to be able to shift their focus back to that class and maybe keep some of those kids more local. And whether they can do that or not remains to be seen. But I think that that's kind of what both schools need to do to get back to where they had some recruiting success under previous coaches. 
you you know you look at Washington, big turnover between Jimmy Lake and Kalen DeBoer with you know. Uh, a lot of scholarship players sort of changing over. But what do you see happening specifically with Washington and maybe their attempt to keep more in-state, the best players in-state home? Are they are they getting the best players now? Well, you know, not necessarily. And I think that that's kind of by design. I mean, there definitely has been an increased focus in California since Kayla DeBoer took over with Courtney Morgan, one of the highest paid directors of players of personnel on the West Coast because of his success when he was at San Jose State and Fresno State and at Michigan. Uh, each time he left the school the following year, they won a conference championship or, you know, were in the playoffs the last couple of years like at Michigan. So he's had success, you know, as a director of player personnel. And I think because so many of his relationships are in California, you've seen a bigger, heavier focus. You look at Pocky Finau, the four-star offensive lineman this week that Washington got a commitment from out of Southern California. And I think that you're seeing that, you know, Washington kids are willing to leave. They were always kind of the last state to, you know, the local kids started to lead more. We've seen that over the last seven, eight years, their willingness to leave. Uh, but I think that the flip side of that is that, you know, Washington isn't striking out so much on the local kids as much as they've shifted their focus to trying to get kids out of California, trying to get kids out of Arizona, out of Nevada, going down into Texas, into Louisiana. So they're still, you know, going to try for some of the top end kids in state, but I don't think it's as much of a pressing issue like it was maybe for Jimmy Lake or like Chris Peterson really tried to do. And even Steve Sarkeesian tried to do when he was there. I think they're understanding that Washington kids are much more willing to leave the state. So the counter to that is to go leave the state to find those recruits. That way you're able to fill out a class of 2025 guys. So if we could, Kind of back up a little bit here. You know, Biggins talked about how he, he thinks we're going to need a few years to really get a feel for the impact of the Big Ten, not only on USC and UCLA's recruiting, but the rest of the Pac-12 recruiting Southern California and also Big Ten schools recruiting in Southern California. But are you seeing any distinct trends uh, you know, outside of the LA pocket, uh, in terms of the impact that this thing is making, or do you, would you kind of feel like we still need a couple more recruiting cycles to know? Yeah, I think there's still going to be a need for a few recruiting cycles to really get an accurate look at if the Big Ten impact is impacting West Coast kids to want to leave and go play in the Big Ten, or if they want to go to USC and UCLA because of their move to the Big Ten. Well, you know, the the fascinating part about it is if you look at some of the players that have really shined in the Big Ten the last couple of years, many of them have been West Coast players. You look at Ohio State with C.J. Stroud, with you know Lathan Ransom, with Emeka Egbuka, J.T. Tumoloa, all guys that are in the Pac-12 footprint, all guys that were in Pac-12 you know cities or, or areas. Um, you look at Michigan when Cade McNamara took into a playoff game, you know, out of Reno, another area that the West Coast has kind of recruited. You look at even if you're looking at the SEC and some of the schools that have flourished down there. Um, or the players are flourished down there. Brock Bowers, Bryce Young come to mind. Those guys were in the West Coast. So we've already seen an exodus of West Coast players, but now it's seemingly becoming not so much a, a Big Ten move uh, impact. It's more of a, these West Coast guys are flourishing all over the country. So if anything, USC and UCLA may have a chance to keep those kids on the West Coast by making the move to the Big Ten and playing with perceived to be bigger time football. But I think, you know, just like we're seeing the impact of the COVID uh, on effect on recruiting in the 2023 transfer portal for something that happened three years ago, it probably won't be until 2026, 2027, where we get, uh, you know, our first real accurate look at it. 
Yeah, but I guess what I'm, I get what we can't know is, is the recruiting out west going to change? Because you're right, Ohio State and Michigan, Georgia, Alabama, they've been peeling off the five star kids for a while now, and there's no reason to think that's not that's going to change. But is the next? Do you think the next level of prospect, you know, the three star, four star kid, are they going to start? leaving to go to the Big Ten or go elsewhere because of this shakeup? Or do you feel like that that group is still most likely to stay home? Well, I, I think there, there's two ways to answer that question, and I think it's yes and no. I think that the second-tier guys are probably more likely to look at staying on the West Coast because those second-tier guys probably aren't going to get looked at by those Big Ten schools. They'll try to get the impact players from out West, but – then they'll probably go to their own second tier in their own region, their own footprint to keep those guys there. But I think the flip side of that is we're now going to see, I believe, more players make the move to national programs because of the impact of the portal. You can go take a gamble and you know go to Indiana to go to college for a year. You can go to Kentucky or to Vanderbilt or go to Florida State, see if you like it, and then you got the, the one-time transfer that you don't have to sit out of here. So it wouldn't be surprising if more guys – kind of take the, the risk on the front end. And then if they find that it's not the right move, then they come back to the West Coast on the second time through. And I think that's where you might see, you know, the, the bigger impact rather than USC and UCA leaving. I think it's more guys leaving just because they know they've got essentially a soft landing spot with the portal. Now, the, the reality to that is, is that we see so many guys going to the portal and not have a destination to go to. So it is a very calculated risk and it doesn't always ensure that you're going to have a landing spot. But I, I think the portal will have a bigger impact on guys leaving the region than USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten. Brandon, uh, you know, Jonathan Smith at Oregon State, Kyle Whittingham at Utah, I was looking at the portal and I was looking at players lost to other programs and they were one and two in the conference as far as retention. I think Oregon State only lost five players to other schools to this point, uh, and Utah only six. Um, Jonathan Smith, I walked by him at the spring game, and I mentioned that to him, and he said, culture. It, it Can culture be an equalizer in this conversation with the portal? And are they recruiting different kinds of players? Are they selling something different in your mind? or Or what is that about, that retention? Well, I think you said it, you know, it's culture. And I think it's very much a, a culture that's in place at Utah and that has been in place since Kyle Whittingham took over, you know, the early success he had when he took over for Urban Meyer, the sustained success he's had since they made the move to the Pac-12 and the pro development, the player development, players going to the NFL, the, the unsung recruits in classes that turn out to be Pac-12 player of the years that end up going on to the NFL. I think that helps. And guys know that, I may have to sit and wait my turn, but I know year three, year four, I can become a guy and I've got a better chance of getting to the NFL than leaving right away. And I think that Oregon State, it's fascinating. If you look at Oregon State's recruiting when Jonathan Smith first got there, it was such a disaster from what he inherited from Gary Anderson and that previous staff. And if you remember that first recruiting class that he had in 2018 was the first year that the portal started to, to have a place in college football. It was heavy on transfers. It was heavy on JUCOs to the point now that the last couple of classes, they've picked and chosen just a couple of JUCOs and guys that are coming from familiar areas where Oregon State has recruited over the last couple of years. And they've been a little bit more picky in 
adding players from the portal. Obviously, getting a player like DJ Uyunglele out of the portal is a lot better than a place they would have been in six years ago where they would have just taken a live body at the quarterback. Now they get to be a little bit more picky and not need to add a lot of guys. And I think that is because of the culture that Jonathan Smith has put in place there. And even though he's only been there six years, he's been there for 25 years, if you if you really think about it. So he knows the culture that existed in Corvallis, and he's not looking to leave like a lot of other coaches. You always have to worry, are they going to be here for the long term? Or are they going to be leaving for another job? And I think that consistency with his staff, and for the most part, a lot of assistants that have stayed there, same with Utah, that allows for guys to really feel comfortable at that school. And that's why I think you're seeing less attrition there and much less turnover than maybe the rest of the conferences. Do you are you sensing that the expanded playoff is having an impact yet, or is it too early to know? On no, I think I, I think you're gonna you're starting to see it now, and I think you're, you're seeing it. You know, when you look at the last couple of classes from the Pac-12 that maybe weren't just the the haves. I know John when. You know, we're talking the recruiting column each week. It, it feels like we're always writing about Oregon and USC and, and Washington to an extent. But you look at Utah coming off their best class ever. You're looking at, you know, obviously Arizona two years ago. The class 22 was one of the best classes, especially coming off a one-win season. And now you're seeing that guys are realizing with, with Oregon State getting Aiden Childs this year. Guys are really, I can go to those schools. And it's not just like in the SEC where it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to be Alabama and Georgia. I could go to, to Oregon State. I could go, you know, potentially to Arizona as Jed Fish builds things. And maybe we're sneaking into the playoffs. Maybe we now have a chance to get into the playoffs. And I, I think that that's something that these coaches are recruiting as such that they now know that it's not as impossible to get into the playoffs. They know that the Pac-12 is going to have a guaranteed spot, maybe two, and hey, potentially maybe three. And I think that that makes it easier to recruit when you're not already out of the mix before the season has even started just because it's the same four teams every year. And I think that that's allowing for a little bit more aggression from some of the coaches that aren't at the, the halves, if you will, in the Pac-12. They're able to sell a little bit more. And I think that that's being you know looked at much more uh, willingly by recruits rather than just always going to the same logos. Dan Lanning in Oregon. Get a lot of credit for doing it well. What are they doing? You 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 watch them. You watch other schools. You know the staffs. What is Oregon doing that maybe others aren't? Well, I think they're doing you know a couple of things. One is they're still sending players to the league. I think it's what now four drafts in a row they've had a first round pick. All right, they're they're sending guys to the league. They're winning. This was considered a down year for Oregon because of how it started, and then you know losing a couple of games down the stretch. They still won ten games. You know they won the Rose Bowl four years ago. They played in the Pac-12 championship game the two years following that. They they'd gone to you know New Year's bowls uh, twice in the last four years. And even if Dan Lanning's first season wasn't as you know New Year's six heavy, it was still a ten win season. I think that you're also seeing Oregon really benefit from the fact that when the majority of these kids were playing youth football and even high school football, Oregon has been one of the constants. And, you know, one of the most prominent youth football teams on the West Coast and in the country was the IE Ducks. And a lot of these kids played for the IE Ducks. So they've been, you know, watching Oregon because those uniforms they were wearing in third or fourth grade were the ones that Oregon was wearing on Saturdays. And I think that that is, you know, Oregon has been the cool school. It's been the it school. We've seen it in basketball. It's why, why is Gonzaga um, recruited as well as they have over the last 10, 15 years? Because high school kids have only known Gonzaga to be successful. These high school kids have seen one blip of a year under Oregon, the 2016 season. Otherwise, 
they've seen success. When the majority of them started playing youth football, Marcus Mariota was winning a Heisman. They were playing for national championships. So they're able to really be that school that was a lot of these kids' dream schools as a kid. And now that's coming into reality, and it's not just on the West Coast. Seven, eight different states are represented each and every year nationally for Oregon's recruiting class. And I think that they've really just – and with Dan Landing being from the South – or having coached in the Southeast, being from the Midwest, with Mario Cristobal being from the Southeast, with Willie Taggart even before that, they've got a lot of coaches that know you don't just need to recruit the West Coast, but they've got the connections around the country. And those kids see Oregon as in its school, and that's allowing for them to have a better chance at landing those guys. So you're not seeing an impact on Oregon in L.A. specifically yet? Well, I mean, you, you still are. Obviously, with, with the landing of a Mateo Uyangalele, you know, in the 2023 class, getting Justin Flo, even if that maybe didn't necessarily work out. They've had success in Southern California. You know, Brandon Baker, uh, the number one offensive lineman in the country at modern day. You know, he's got Oregon on his very, very, very short list. His brother played at Oregon. You're, you're still seeing the impact of Oregon in the Southland. But, again, they're getting to be a little bit more picky and choosy. They don't have to just live and die in L.A. like they may have under right. you know, at the end of Mike Pilotti or under Chip Kelly and Mark Helfrich. They could be very picky with who they recruit in Southern California, but then know they can recruit nationally and they're still attracted to those kids outside of the region. Right. I, I, I wasn't too super clear on my question, but you're not seeing an adverse impact from the the Big Ten thing on Oregon's ability to recruit Southern California. Not at all. In fact, one of the most, I don't want to say damning things, but I remember one of the most fascinating things when I did a follow-up after the Big Ten announced that USC and UCLA were joining, going back to Brandon Baker. You know, you, you're getting a response from these kids. What's your opinion about USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten? Oh, that's cool. I never thought that would be something that would happen, but I'm interested. And then Brandon Baker, who plays at really the flagship or one of the two or three flagship schools out west, said, you know, USC and UCLA can no longer sell the hometown theme if they're leaving the hometown to go play in the Midwest and go play on the East Coast. You know, they've always prided themselves on being that local school, but are they really a local school if they're playing six or seven games across the country? And for a sophomore in high school who's going to be a junior in high school to, to say something like that means that he was paying attention. And that's one of those things where, like, if you're USC and UCLA, how do you counter that? What is yeah. your counter argument to that? And, you know, that's a guy that's, like I said, he's the number one offensive lineman in the country. USC and UCLA both want him bad. They both want a foothold in modern day. But then Oregon goes in there and says, hey, we're not leaving. Or at least we're not leaving anytime soon. And now they can be the hometown school, even if they're a state away, because they're not leaving the Brandon, I've got Alex Molden, the uh, former Oregon DB, NFL DB, lives like a block and a half away from me. And I see his eight kids, you know, and, and the older kids when they visit. And Elijah goes to Washington. Uh, now, Josiah is an eighth grader. Oregon yes. offered him as an eighth grader. Where do you stand? Help people make sense of the strategy of offering a scholarship to an eighth grader and, and what it means and, you know, what Oregon's trying to do with that offer. Well, for one thing, it's it was funny to watch, you know, how certain fan bases reacted to the offer. Um, and then you look and their schools have offered eighth graders. You know, it's the, the game has changed. You, you, sometimes if there's a no brainer, you have to offer him as an eighth grader. But what was funny is last month, Josiah came up to a camp in Washington and I asked him, like, OK, you know, your brother played at Washington. You got to watch your brother play at Washington, but your dad played at Oregon before you were born. Who did you grow up a fan of? And, you know, he kind of scratched his head and smiled and said, man, that's a tough question. And he said, but I'd probably have to say Oregon. 
well, you know, Washington's going to want to get him to follow his brother, but Oregon's going to want to keep him and not lose a Molden like they did with Elijah. So it was a smart early offer for Dan Lanning because he's the best going to be high schooler I've seen from the state of Oregon probably since Talanoa Hufunga back in 2000 and whatever that was, 14 before he started his senior year or his freshman year. That's how special player Josiah is. But there's going to be a lot of schools that are going to have to to really put up a fight against Oregon and Washington for him because I do think there are those familial ties to Oregon and to Washington. And because he's going to be such a good player, there's not a lot of guys you can see as an eighth grader and say, okay, he's going to be special, but he's the one. You talk to some of the coaches at Westland and they just get grins on their face from ear to ear talking about him, knowing that they get him for four years. That's why you offer him because he's going to be a national recruit. So the earlier you can start to build that relationship with a player of his caliber, you do it. Now, I don't think you need to make 50 offers to eighth graders. You should let a lot of those guys start playing high school football, maybe play varsity football before you start throwing out offers. But he's that rare case where I think age kind of defies the the need to to wait a little bit. I think in that case, he's a talent. He's got ties to two schools that hate each other that you want to get as much traction as you can as early as you can. I don't know if you uh, you heard, but Washington State basketball coach Kyle Smith went on KJR yesterday and talked about you know losing DJ Robin to USC and the impact NILs having in basketball. And he, he kind of uh, estimated that to put together a top 50, top 60 basketball program, you need what, what was it, John? A million, million and a half? Yeah. Uh, what is... What's the going rate for a top 25 football program on the NIL front? How, how much money are we talking about? If I remember right, Ryan Day was quoted as saying, may have been right before the season started, might have been during the fall, but he used a number and it was a kind of a weird crooked number of, you need $11 million to, to put a recruiting class together. And I never thought that Ryan Day said that as a complaint to say, oh, it costs $11 million. I thought he said it as a call to arms for the Ohio State boosters to essentially yep. say, you need to come up with $11 million if we want us to be competitive to get over that hump of playing for a national championship and winning the national championship. It's the same way you know, when, when Nick Saban had his little uh, toe-to-toe with Jimbo Fisher last summer, it wasn't a way of him taking a shot at Texas A&M. It was a way of him getting the Alabama boosters on board to say, guys, if we want to win consistently for the next 10 years, this is what we need to do. So I think when you're coming up with a number like $11 million, you kind of know that that's what you're working with. And, you know, talking to some NIL lawyers like I have over the last two years, seeing what each position costs, it's, it's very much like the NFL draft where you're seeing a premium placed on certain positions and less of a premium placed on other positions. But you start doing the math and, man, I mean, you're, you're talking – a good chunk of money and sometimes that might only get you six or seven guys in some schools you might only get one guy at that the other 24 their nil is the nli that they're signing but i think if you want to be competitive you're going to need classes to to have you know resources in the the 10 to 15 million if you want to win at an elite level and so i assume a quarterback tackle edge rusher are the highest paid it, pretty much in that order. And you probably throw in an elite cover corner that would probably be in that top five and maybe a big time playmaking receiver. You know, interestingly enough, interior linemen and, you know, both on the offensive and defensive side of the ball don't attract as much money. Linebackers are, aren't as much. Safeties aren't as much. Tight ends, which we've seen a renaissance at the position, you know, they're, they're still relatively cheap, but 
if you want to be competitive, you better have the wallet ready for a quarterback, for a left tackle, and for an elite pass rusher because those will cost you. Brandon, I was talking with Bruce Barnum, the Portland State coach, and kind of asking him about the trickle-down effect. And in the big sky, he said they're seeing better talent. They're signing better players than they've ever signed before. Uh, the thinking being that kids can go to the big sky, high school kids that maybe aren't being recruited because you know the uh, the Power Fives are are in the portal so much. They're getting they're getting kids that they didn't get before, but they're getting them maybe for a year or two, or you know maybe they can convince them to stay. But what do you make of kind of that the the trickle down effect and what you see from high school kids who who maybe um, aren't getting the offers maybe three-star kids, two-star kids that aren't getting the offers but have a chance maybe to go to the big sky or somewhere like that and then jump through the portal uh, after a year or two? Yeah, and I think that that's a great question because I think it's something that we're seeing answered more and more. If you look at some of the best players in the big sky in the last couple of years, you've seen Isaiah Fonse help Montana State to a national championship appearance. You know, he leaves Montana State just to miss the cow last week after a brief stop at San Jose State. Uh, you look at Xavier Guillory, who was one of the best receivers in the big sky at Idaho State. He's now at Arizona State. Uh, Freddie Roberson went to Rainier Beach High School, was a late bloomer because he was a basketball player, goes to Eastern Washington. Now he's at Mississippi State. So the big sky, essentially, and even the FCS, is kind of becoming a little bit more like the JUCOs used to be, where you go there, you, you, you bide your time, you play, you make an impact, and then you can be cherry-picked later in your career. But I also think you're seeing big sky schools now realize, hey, we might only get this kid for a year or two, but – We'll take that year or two with them because now when that kid's having success and he's going to a bigger school, we're going to have a better chance of getting a kid that we may not have gotten in previous years because they thought we were in oblivion. And one thing that I've said for probably the last seven, eight years with the Big Sky is one of the biggest benefits that the Big Sky has to getting good recruits is the fact that there's only one group of five conference on the West Coast. If you go down to Georgia, you've got, you know, Georgia State's in the Sun Belt. You've got schools in the Sun Belt, the American, the ACC, the SEC, um, you know, Conference USA. Well, you come out to the West Coast, schools are basically either in the Pac-12 or the Mountain West. There's not three other group of five conferences. So you're seeing the Montana States, the Montanas, the Eastern Washingtons, the mm -hmm. Idaho, even the Portland States getting players that had Mountain West offers, in some cases had Pac-12 offers. We've seen Pac-12 commits that a coaching change ended their dream of going to that school, end up at Big Sky schools when it was all said and done. And because the Big Sky doesn't have other group of five conferences out West they're competing with, they're getting a better caliber of player so it's not a surprise that you're seeing Power 5 schools after a year or two, these guys being there after three or four years, dipping into the big sky from those portal guys. So I think you're going to continue to see the big sky recruit like they're the Mountain West. And in a lot of cases, maybe even offer a better opportunity at a, at a big sky school. When you see a lot of these empty stadiums in the Mountain West, you know, because they're 35, 40,000 st uh, stadiums, maybe 15,000 people are there, or you go watch Montana, Montana State, which are packed and sold it, selling out their games, playing on ESPN 3, you're going to see more kids being interested in going to a Montana and Montana State, especially when guys are getting to the NFL. So I think the big sky's in a great position here uh, these next couple of years. And that is, it's a great point. And it's also a slippery slope for the Pac-12 because Pac-12 schools schedule the the big sky as their quote-unquote cupcake, but it's a tough game. Whereas you're in the Big 12 or SEC and you're scheduling the equivalent schools 
to the big sky in the southeastern quadrant, and they're not nearly as good, and they're not as competitive, and so there's not as great a risk of taking on a bad loss. And so Pac-12, in some ways, the the lack of you know other G5s and the trickle-down effect of that talent hurts the Pac-12 in those non-conference games. 100%. I mean, if you look at historically when an FCS team has beaten the Big Ten team, it's been a North Dakota State, like I think, what was it, five – games in a row they beat a power five school and they played it but they were the best team in the fcs i mean two years ago you had a very bad northern arizona team beat a very bad arizona team you had montana going into husky stadium and beating washington we've seen where these power five schools think they've got an easy dub and now if i mean you go back to chris peterson's first year i think it was his first home game that he, he ever coached when vernon adams gave Washington all the fits that you could possibly imagine an FCS school given. So this has been going at back. Eastern Washington goes down and beats Oregon State in Corvallis another year. So you're right. And then these players have that chip on their shoulder. I didn't get recruited by that local school. This game means a lot more. I mean, Gavin Robertson had two interceptions against Washington when Montana beat Washington. He played at Auburn Mountain View High School, 30 minutes from Husky Stadium. So these kids then have a little bit more of a chip on their shoulder that the local school didn't recruit them. And, you know, they're already talented because it's not unusual as much for a group of five school to be a power five school. But we're seeing it's becoming even less unusual when a FCS school beats a group of five because the talent's gotten that much better. You're named NCAA recruiting czar tomorrow, and you can change any rule, whether it's the calendar or something else about recruiting that you think would help I don't want to say clean it up, but make the make the whole process uh, more stable and give it a better chance for long term success. Is there something that jumps out to you that has got to be changed? I only get one rule to change. One I, rule, I only one. one. You know, honestly, I think the first rule to change would be very similar to what baseball has done, where you cannot offer guys until their junior year. I remember my son was playing seven-on-seven football as an eighth grader, uh, going into ninth grade, and they were playing a team that was based out of Portland. And there were three Pac-12 baseball commits before those guys even played a game of high school baseball. They were all going to be freshmen that year, and the pandemic had pushed it back. So these guys were all committed to Pac-12 schools before they even started playing high school baseball. Well, this last month, the the NCAA decided that you can no longer have contact with a player until he's going into his junior year. So a lot of these kids were committing as eighth graders, as ninth graders, and then maybe they weren't progressing and then schools were cutting ties. If you push back when the players can get offers, you don't have eighth graders getting offers. You don't have ninth and 10th graders getting offers. You don't have schools just throwing out offers like candy. You have a much more defined calendar of when those offers can go out. And I think you probably find yourself dealing with less transfers if guys aren't being recruited for four years that maybe peaked as 14-year-old and 15-year-old, and you're not trying to see these schools process these guys. Because that's the ugly dark side to recruiting is that a lot of these guys that go to the portal weren't given a choice. They were told, you need to leave and go find another place to play because you're never going to play here. I think this would cut down on the amount of players that go into the portal if there was a little bit more diligence done by schools. And by that, it would be waiting until they've got two years of high school film rather than just being told, hey, you should offer this guy because he might be good in four years. If you have a better calendar, I think it cut down on a lot of the stuff we're seeing on the underbelly of recruiting. Well, Biggin said something very, very similar, which tells me that you guys 
think a lot alike, no surprise, but also that the NCAA ought to probably give that some thought, you know, because it makes a ton of sense, ton of sense. So we can't thank you enough for doing this. Uh, and, you know, great perspective on so many. I mean, we could do a, you know, an entire series on recruiting and barely yeah. scratch the surface, but can't thank you enough for uh, helping us see see clearly what's going on out there yeah and i think it's absolutely uh, brandon i think too like the the one-two punch of you and biggins uh for our listeners i mean there's just nobody better to talk recruiting so thank you i appreciate it i'm glad you guys could uh could have us on i'm glad you guys you know started off strong with greg and then you know you ended it with the with the weakling and myself but i let <laughs> greg do all the work for you know eight and a half innings i just come in to throw that one pitch <laughs> you <laughs> closing it out mariano rivera uh, there you go. There you go. Brandon Huffman. Thanks so much, Brandon. Thank you. Thanks, guys. There he goes. Uh, really good stuff. Wilner, uh, immediate rapid reaction. All right. We we just had Greg Biggins and Brandon Huffman back to back. Two foremost experts on recruiting. Um, quick takeaways. I mean, obviously, USC is recruiting like USC should recruit with Lincoln Riley and Southern California and a collective and some advantages there, but not seeing the Big Ten move have that impact, not yet at least. Yeah, that was certainly one of them. I mean, we we got to see how it plays out over a couple of recruiting cycles, but it seems like the initial early returns are it is not that move by the L.A. schools is not necessarily a death blow to the Pac-12 on the recruiting trail. But, you know, there's just – there's so much. And when you factor the transfer portal into the recruiting process and you got NIL and the expanded playoff – conference realignment there's so many layers to recruiting you know we could we could do like 10 episodes on on recruiting just from the Pac-12 standpoint alone and barely scratch the surface i think the everything is fascinating because there are no everything is gray there's there's very few obvious answers to any of this and to me that makes it that much more interesting and too like you know i'm interested in you know all of these things are not the same like the Pac-12 schools all not the same. You've got Stanford and Cal, which have these academic challenges, but they're in the Bay Area. You've got Washington and Oregon uh, with, you know, probably collectives that are far more evolved and and motivated than some others. You have Oregon State and Utah selling culture. You've got, you know, Washington State trying to figure out where it fits. And the Arizona schools, you have new coach at Arizona State and Jed Fish at Arizona. Like, I just think in Colorado with Coach Prime— it's it's like you know you have this collection of schools all within the same conference, but metro schools, you know, or, you know rural schools. You've got agricultural schools, land grant schools. It all different, and yet the they have the primary the same objective. Their primary objective is the same. They all are trying to win this conference and get to the playoff. Yeah, and they have different different ways to do it now. The portal has changed everything uh, in way, and I think it's going to continue to. Right. Because uh, it's going to schools are going to figure out how to you know, become more efficient with the portal. And I think recruits are going to become more official, uh, efficient with the portal. But but it seems like it's, it's certainly something of an equalizer. And, you know, we've seen both, for instance, Oregon State and Washington State get guys out of the portal that can really impact their season. So that that just adds another dynamic to the whole thing. When you talk about recruiting, it's not just the decision the high school kid's going to make. It's it's the decision that the 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 transfer is going to make, and as was it was it Biggins who said, or maybe it was Huffman who said that you know 
they're hearing about kids in high school who are plotting two steps ahead. All right, we're going to go to a school to put us in great position to get NIL money in the portal. I mean, that's that is an example of how intricate this whole thing is. Yeah, and you also have the added, you know, element. We really didn't talk to the guys about this, but it was, you know, Kyle Smith at Washington State who said that he talked to one of his players and you have an agent involved in, in taking a 20% commission on NIL money and but an agent involved really in steering a player or helping a player arrange uh, a departure and arrival at a new program while they're in the portal. Like it, it's, it is a wild West right now. And I, I just love that we have these guys to help us kind of wrap our heads around it. Uh, I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. John Wilner, Bay area news group, superstar, catch him at pac12hotline.com. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends about it, share it liberally um, you know, it's it's uh, provided to you as a service. Uh, if you have suggestions for us for future episodes, tweet at us. Uh, we love kind of uh, getting outside the box a little bit and covering this conference from different angles. Uh, John Wilner, thank you, as always, and uh, thanks to our listeners. Great show. Thanks, everybody.